welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets Podcast, a monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music world. This month I'm speaking to Don Morley, who is a Grammy award-winning producer and sound engineer who's worked with the likes of Amy Winehouse, Mark Ronson, Sting and a whole host of others. He fought an incredible career for himself, starting off making tea essentially in studios, and he now mixes for a living. He also runs a mix consultancy service where you can send your mixes for expert feedback on production, and he also teaches at Leeds College of Music. So I caught up with Dom a couple of weeks back, and the first question I asked him was about his musical beginnings. That would be Scott Joplin. Uh, my mum used to play the, well, does play the piano, and she played a lot of Scott Joplin, so there was uh, The Entertainer, Maple Leaf Rag, that sort of stuff. And uh, at the age of five, I, I wanted to play The Entertainer. So I asked for piano lessons and got them, and that's kind of, that, I guess that's step one. That was how it started. And I never did learn how to play The Entertainer. Really? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Why not? Actually, the proper version's properly complex. It's like, you know, at least three note chords in the right hand all the way through, and yeah, there are simpler versions out there now that are a bit easier to play, which I should have bothered to learn. Mm-hmm. But I figured if I was going to do it, I was going to learn the proper one, and then I never did. I yeah, gave I think a- it's that second section where the arpe- it like sort of goes up and down. It's all, all with the three-note chords. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, and I, I gave up when I was 10 because, um, as always, you know, with, with uh, when you're learning an instrument, it, it kind of all hinges on your teacher and what they're like. So, Absolutely. Um, I guess I just didn't have a very inspiring one at that point. And then I started again when I was about 16, 17, because I hadn't got to my grade five and I just wanted to do my grade five. So I did my grade five and about 17 and then left home at 18, didn't have a piano. So then that was that. And then just recently got one here. So mm-hmm. my piano skills are very poor, but it started from wanting to be able to play Scott Joplin. Right, nice. And did you, did you play the songs that you were into at the time on the piano as well? Um, I didn't really. I guess as a kid, there wasn't that, you know, as a seven-year-old or eight-year-old, there weren't really, I wasn't really doing that. I wasn't, yeah, that's a good point, actually. I was just doing whatever I was doing with my lessons. And I had some really good teachers that would just, you know, sit you down, play your three or four pieces and say, which one do you want? And then you'd pick one of those. And it would be classical stuff, I I guess, generally, but but stuff that I really liked or stuff that was working for me. So Mm -hmm. um, that, but no, I never really kind of, it wasn't until I was older Till I, I retook it, took it up again when I was a teenager that I started to try and work out what things were um, that I liked. But I it always ended up you'd get a little bit, I'll get a little bit of a way through and then go, oh, but, uh, make a mistake and go, oh, that sounded quite cool. And then just end up starting to sort of write something or do something different. So yeah. I never really got into actually learning somebody else's stuff because mm-hmm. the mistakes would take me somewhere else. That's good though, isn't it? That's a good like a good journey to be going on. At least you have like a starting point to base yeah. it around and then take it off. I think that's the great thing about the piano is um that it sort of has the music theory in front of you, doesn't it? Like, yeah, that's true. The, yeah, yeah. It's there to see. Yeah. Good. So um I believe you studied music A level. I actually right? only did an AS level. Oh, okay. Because the A level I heard the A level you had to listen to a string quartet four times. And at the end of those four times, you had to have transcribed the whole thing. And I thought, there really? is no way I'm going to be able to do that. <laughs> so I did the AS level instead. Do you reckon they did that to just sort the people out? Who Maybe. Like really, like, yeah. we'll just say this to everyone. Yeah, and then, and then only the really serious ones will stick to it. <laughs> so the A level was a bit simpler. 
Um, it was good at well, it was fine. There, there was some. It was obviously mostly classically orientated, um, uh, but there was one very useful thing that happened randomly, which was um, uh, you know for later on in my career there was we studied a guy called John Dowland because he was the first really the first English songwriter. So he was. Have you heard of him? Do you know Don, John Dowland? I don't know. Okay, no, so it's like 14th century stuff or somewhere around there. I plays the lute. Exactly. Yes. So he yeah, wrote songs on the. He sang them and he played the lute, and they were written down. These songs that he wrote, you know, or they were passed down long enough to get written down. It was very popular in the day. So we did this one. There was one called Lacrime, which meant "Flow My Tears," right? Um, and that was one of the kind of six pieces that we studied properly, intensely. And then years later, I was working at uh, Metropolis Studios, um, which is where I sort of trained to be an engineer, was in-house engineer for a while and stuff. And I was on a Sting session. And he had done, uh, he did a loot album, world's best-selling loot album, <laughs> unsurprisingly, because <laughs> Sting's on it. Um, but it was, I think it was mostly, if not entirely, John Dowland covers, basically. So he did all these John Dowland songs. And, and this track came up called uh, Flow My Tears. And I said, is that Lacrime? And I think he was fairly astounded that someone else knew John Dowland enough to know the alternative names yeah, of tracks. Yeah, wow, yeah, the Latin name. Yeah, yeah that's which, incredible. Which I didn't, I just knew that one. <laughs> um, but then that helped, uh, think, uh, that helped me get a gig uh, about a year later when the police reformed and did a world tour. Mm-hmm. It was my first freelance gig, was basically going to Sting's Place in Tuscany for six weeks and kind of being a Pro Tools guy and helping them set up for the tour. Um, so yeah, that was a bit of luck out yeah. of my AS level. That's music. like the universe coming together a yeah. little bit, isn't it? Just yeah, having yeah. to know that track. And it was finally worthwhile. He must have looked at you and gone, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again? yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, my dad plays the lute, so I've always grown up with. Oh really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mum plays in like medieval reenactment groups with hurdy gurdies and all wow. kinds of weird things. So um, yeah, it's a beautiful sound, the lute. It's a really, yeah, really nice, sort of angelic. Yeah, yeah. Sort of sound, isn't it? We've got, my dad's got an oud at home. Because we lived in Saudi when I was little, Saudi Arabia. Nice, Um, And the oud then moved to uh, France and became le oud, which is where the lute comes from. So that was like the original one of that. The original guitar sort of thing was from then. Unless it, you know, it possibly went further back into China before then. But Mm -hmm. we certainly got it from the oud in, uh, in the Middle East. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. It's kind of a weird one, that one, yeah. the instrument, but uh, but yeah, it's fine. Um, and what sort of bands were you listening to in your sort of teenage years? What were you into? Uh, I guess the big one, the big one that sort of opened the doors for me was um, was not the doors was uh, <laughs> was listening to Pink Floyd's "Wish You Were Here." That mm. was a sort of that was a moment where um, I took I borrowed the cassette off my brother who had borrowed it off a mate or something and so I, I put it on and, and, and an hour later music had changed for me. I was aware of much more that it was capable of than I guess before that I was into chart stuff, you know, Michael Jackson and Bon Jovi and whatever was sort of kicking around. Whereas whereas mm-hmm. hearing Wish You're Here, I was like, Wow, this is a whole different world that I didn't know. So I got very into Floyd for a while and bought all the kind of fifteen albums or eighteen albums or whatever it was. Um and then from there, I was really the next one I was really into was Joy Division. I was mm-hmm. big into them for quite a while, um, and then it was kind of that kind of the '90s. So the Pixies were massive, and still are. I'm a big fan of the Pixies. There's still, that's not. I tend to take it down when companies are around, just in case. But um, the album cover of Surfer Rosa, which is the second album, which is the album that made me form a band. I heard Surfer Rosa and thought, 
I'm going to make it start a band and we're going to do this. Nice. Um, it sits just underneath the monitor um, on my desk as a kind of reminder of this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to, whatever I do, I'm supposed to be trying to make people feel like I felt when I heard that album. Wow, that's great. That's but the great... album cover's got a half-naked woman on, which is why I'm always nervous. <laughs> if you know that that's Surfer Rosa, you go, oh, it's got Surfer Rosa. But if you don't know, you go, he's just got a half-naked woman in front of him. That's really yeah, weird. All the time. Yeah, all the time, he's exactly. Out of it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, sometimes it goes in the drawer when somebody turns up. Um, but yeah, so then the pictures were a big one. And it was that, there's an interesting thing... Um, Barry said about that album, which was um, there's a bit of a documentary on that on that record, and he said um, it's like the first Velvet Underground album in that not many people bought it, but everyone that did started a band, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that's true of that second one quite a lot, and it's because it sounds Surfer Rosa sounds very raw because it was it was very much you know what those four people happened to be that's what they sounded like at the time. It was produced by Steve Albini. And is very much his. I'm I'm a recording archivist. I'm not a producer. So mm-hmm. uh, I think the band said that their biggest feedback from him was try another one or something like that. You know, he really doesn't get involved creatively at all. But but he does. He was very good and still is very good at capturing the moment. You know, with with people that are ready to be captured in that way and are very well rehearsed and everything else. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, really, uh, that was a really big one for me. My band didn't sound anything like it. We were dreadful, but, but never mind. Yeah, I <laughs> it was guess, good fun. Oh, yeah, no one's first band really good, really. Yeah. I guess there's not many people who made it with their first band. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's cool, man. I love that you use that as an inspiration, That, that like the feeling, emotion yeah. behind that to like achieve achieve that sort of greatness I yeah think if someone really if someone image something that i work on can make somebody want to make their own music i think that's as much as you can ever achieve i think that's the highest for me that's the highest kind of that's the peak achievement mm. i think i'm capable of doing the opposite with my music <laughs> <laughs> make people never want to hear music again <laughs> never hear or play or listen to music again i think that's my special skill <laughs> Cool. Okay, so you, it, you you sort of documented quite well that you um, you approached a lot of studios out of college. Um, yeah, yeah. To essentially make tea for them. Yeah, yeah. My line was, um, "I work for nothing. I make good tea." Yeah. Let me in. You know, which yeah. It's like the archetypal story of like what everyone's told to do if they want yeah. to be successful, isn't it? So I think it's it's phenomenal that you've I lack the creativity achieved. to do anything else other than just no, what no, someone told me to do. You've done that exact thing that was <laughs> yeah. like always the the sort of the humble beginning of offering your services for free yeah. to to do anything to be yeah, in yeah. the studio. Just to get you know? in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a really commendable commendable yeah. way of forging a career in in music yeah yeah well actually the big advantage i had psychologically was i had previously through very long story which we won't get into but i did a door-to-door sales job for a little while Mm -hmm. and um and you just get used to no and you don't care you just don't care if someone says no to you so i was happy to knock on all these doors for days just knocking on doors of studios you you know i work for nothing make good tea no okay i'll just jog on to the next one which i think if i hadn't that resilience from having mm. that job for a while, yeah. it would have been much harder for me, and I don't think I, I possibly wouldn't have made the distance, you know, to find somebody that said yes. Yeah, that end. determination. Yeah, and, the and just not caring that a load of people say no. Just you know, someone will say yes in the end. Someone will say yes. Yeah, it's interesting you're saying that because I've I've watched the TED talk recently on rejection and on mm-hmm. how rejection is actually really good for us. And right. there's a guy who went around for like weeks on end 
saying asking people who are random strangers ridiculous things in order to sort of in order to feel the rejection right but what he was surprised by was the amount of times people didn't reject him and they actually took him up on his weird offer or strange thing that he asked them for um yeah so it is a sort of a a character building thing and yeah like you say a bit maybe a bit fortuitous that you had that door-to-door salesman where everyone's just slamming the door in your face it wasn't actually you see that's the funny thing everyone assumes that it's like really brutal but it really isn't most people are nice you know, yeah. most people are nice and they just go, no, thanks. You know, it's, true, yeah, it's yeah. so, uh, so it really was. And it also depends how you approach them. You know, if you approach someone in a friendly kind of smiling way, most people kind of, you, you tend to get that back. That's reflected. So, um, definitely, you know, Absolutely. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the fact I didn't enjoy that job. I just wasn't ultimately going to be doing it. I ultimately wanted to do music. So I, I battled on it and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and went into what I wanted to do instead. started trying to look in London and got nowhere and then went to Birmingham's the next kind of biggest city mm-hmm. um, so um, so I managed to get work experience in a place that had an SSL desk which is like the one of the big posh ones basically and uh, and a Studer tape machine which was the big posh tape machine um, so that was great but then more importantly the guy that I was helping out there um, knew the guy who was chief engineer of the UB40s studio which was a commercial studio and had two rooms and, you know, was probably the biggest in Birmingham, um, biggest and poshest in Birmingham. So um, it was really through knowing that guy that I got the second job, which was an actual paid job, you know, and then I sort of was on my way. And I'm still still keeping in touch with that guy that gave me that job. Really? When I was, tw- no, I was 20. Yeah, 20, not quite 21. Yeah, when I was 20. In fact, um, I was at the NAM show a couple of weeks ago and me and him just sort of hang out at the NAM show because he was there for something and we were both given a talk and... Right. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. Oh, cool. That's amazing. I'd, yeah. What was Nam like? What What is it like? I've never been. I've seen a lot of videos of it. It's fi- yeah. It's like? nuts. It's exhausting because it's massive. Um, it's a huge convention center, and there's every conceivable bit of gear is represented there, pretty much. Although I obviously went majorly for the synths because that's kind of synths and pro audio are the two kind of obsessions, mm. and the synths weren't that well represented this year because there's a new synth show in california that happens a little bit later on which is a bit more niche and so it's a bit like i think music Messa used to be the big one in frankfurt is it in europe and now there's super booth yeah super booth which is the synth version of it so music Messa doesn't get so much synth stuff in so it's a bit like that um so i had a look at some and there was some great synths there to be fair but then i spent a lot of time with pro audio where there was a lot of a few people i know anyway some mates that were there so it was quite nice um and then um and then some really amazing gear. But what I love as well is this little, like, I've got a Coleman audio monitor selector, right, which mm-hmm. is really clean, pure. It's passive. It's very, very clean monitor selector, so it doesn't colour your signal, which is what you want. Um, and they were there, which is actually one guy. So I said hello. I said, oh, I've got one of those. And he said, oh, I made it then, because I'll make all of these. <laughs> He's always made everything that he'd done. So it's quite nice to meet those kind of, those characters and have a chat and stuff. Definitely, um, yeah, especially when they've made a piece of gear that's, uh, you know, that's been integral to your setup. Exactly. It's just one guy. Yeah, yeah it's just like, the well, one guy that really makes it all. Just you. Yeah. A little bit like, yeah, the stuff I was showing you earlier, the 64 pixel stuff. Yeah. That's just one guy. That's my mate Jason who, yeah. who works from home and 
he's phenomenally talented and um yeah a real sort of magnetic personality yeah like a really good guy yeah yeah um yeah the music industry needs those people as much as it needs the the big core yeah and, yeah yeah exactly yeah and uh the corporate guys good so um but you did eventually go on to uh work in london mm-hmm. at metropolis eventually at metropolis yeah, yeah yeah i didn't get a job first i i was rejected the first job offer or oh, the first job i went for i didn't get um which was basically they uh it was one of those situations, so they said the job was, I can't remember what they described it as, cable assistant or something. I didn't know what it was, but it was a job at Metropolis and I wanted it. Mm-hmm. it was, Metropolis had five proper rooms, two SSLs, no, three SSLs, each, you know, an E-series, G-series and J-series, a Neve and a Focusrite, which was very rare. So I thought, the, the reason why I really wanted Metropolis because I thought I don't want to end up being one of those guys who, you sometimes get it with engineers where they know an SSL or they know a Neve and they can only work in a studio that has that desk. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to be able to know how desks work so that I could go anywhere. So I figured yeah, if I yeah, learned yeah, at Metropolis, yeah. I'd be so versed on all these varieties, I would never be intimidated by a desk, you know, mm-hmm. as I saw some people were. Um, so so I went for this job, and I'd sort of talked about my experience and what I've been doing. I've been two and a half years at the studio Depp in Birmingham, and I'd sort of been assisting in engineering and doing all sorts and then they said, oh, well, you, you're too qualified then for this. And then I quickly tried to backtrack and go, well, I want to say engineering. You know, I've really kind of been helping out the guy. Yeah. It didn't work. Just been washing the carpet most <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. time, really. It didn't work. So I didn't get that job. But then what it meant was about six weeks later, um, a kind of uh, the next rung on the ladder job came up. And so they actually rang me and said, look, we think this would be more suited. Come down. And, and, and I got that one. So that worked out in the end. Yeah. And you were then where you wanted to be? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I was I was at the one I, want, I really wanted, so that was great. Yeah, and um, I saw you talk at the SAE in London yeah. earlier this year, and yeah. you mentioned one really cool point, which is that you shared a room with somebody. Was that at Metropolis? It was, so that was after my run through Metropolis. So I had been assistant engineer and in-house engineer and stuff, and I was there employed by Metropolis for about seven years. And then I went freelance, um, kind of roughly about the time that Amy's album was out and Mark's album was out, and all the sort of sort of things were kicking off a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went freelance then, um, and it was just about the point where you were starting to have to have your own studio to work as a kind of producer and stuff. So it was the point where people or record companies stopped assuming they were going to be hiring you a room if they wanted you to work. So I thought I've got to get somewhere. And then um, there's a friend of mine called Chris Potter who I'd um, assisted and engineered for a lot over the years. Who He produced Urban Hymns for the Verve and wow. and done a lot of Richard Ashcroft stuff ever since, amongst many other sort of great things. Mm. Um, and uh, he had a room at Metropolis and I was just chatting to him about needing one and he said, um, he said, well, I don't need this five, five days a week. Why don't you come in? So we sort of pulled all our gear and, and had sort of couple of days a week each and um that really worked for about five years we just shared shared that room which was um yeah it's a really good thing yeah um i spoke to a guy called scott diaz who's like a garage house producer okay and he said as he was growing up him and his friends really didn't like have a lot of money to buy equipment but they did a similar thing they all pulled pulled their what they had into one studio 
and they had all the gear to share and they had the knowledge to share between them yeah. and it's yeah it seems like a really good approach for yeah. anyone who is starting out who you know prices can look quite meteoric to someone who hasn't got much of an income yeah so yeah i think sharing that experience and sharing the gear is exactly is a really good a really great good way to start out so what sort of stuff did you do at metropolis like what did you work on while you were there whatever i was told to <laughs> that's the thing when you're in-house you just have to you have to do what you do um whatever comes in so it was all sorts from um i guess it's it's the biggest independent studio in europe the rooms were quite expensive so you end up doing quite high levels or you know there's quite a lot of sort of globally big acts that come in because it's that sort of place so as well as you know some stuff that you uh you'd never heard of and and you shouldn't so that's fine <laughs> there'd also be you know worked on a rod stewart session and a mick jagger album and a michael jackson session and things like that so so there were things like that that came in as well which was um yeah which was cool yeah interesting did you yeah did you, could, would you say you had any sort of out of body experiences working on any of those bigger sessions there were definitely two there were two moments where i suddenly had a kind of what am I doing in this room? <laughs> so one of them was I was sat in a, it's a Studio B as a studio I worked in loads. It was Chris Potter's favourite one and I used to work with him a lot. So I was in Studio B all the time and it had a little lounge, a bit like where we're sitting now, but it was like an L-shaped sofa. And so I spent a lot of time in the sofa. It was right behind the control room, just doors opened out. So you could sit there and be useful uh, without having to sit in the control room. So I spent a lot of time on this sofa. And then... Um, this time I realised I was sat on the sofa like normal, but on my left was the guy who wrote Hotel California. And then on my right, down the kind of other side of the L shape, was the, I think, fifth in line to the Bahrainian throne. And then next to him was Michael Jackson. Wow. So I'm like, what am I doing on this sofa? Like, you three have got a reason to be sat together, but I really don't have a reason to be here. Apart from obviously it was my studio that it's I worked so yeah. I had more reason, reason to be there than anyone else in a way. But yeah, it was quite funny. And the other one was. In the same room, so I was working on a, a Mick Jagger album, and Pete Townsend come to play uh, guest guitar. He had a few sort of guests on that album, so Pete Townsend came to play guitar, and he went out to play next to his amp, and he was just incredible. He went from being, you know, because he's probably, you know, a few years older than my dad, maybe, and he's, you know, quite a quiet sort of guy. Um, so he was sort of chatting with Mick in the control room, and then he went out to the to the live area and, and played like a seventeen year old who had been shut in his room. You know, it's just the the energy coming out of him was insane, and I was just there being blown away by that. And then next to me was Jerry Hall having a bit of a dance, and next to her was Whoa. next to her was Mick Jagger. So they're like, "Why am I in here? This is mad! Like you guys should be here." But uh, again, what am I doing in a room was, with these yeah, guys? Yeah, and it's the combination of all of those things. Yeah, and, like if yeah. all those things just firing off at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Wow, that must have been amazing. Yeah, uh, I do have to say, uh, Pete Townsend has one of the CVOCDs. Oh, does he? he? Bought one. Yeah, cool. he bought one off my friend. An amazing guy, and he still seems to like have it together with. And he doesn't have like a huge ego. No, 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 no. Very, very yeah. And and I, I found Mick Jagger to be the same actually. I mean, I think in another life, Mick Jagger would have been like a an Oxford Don or something. You know, he's very kind of quiet and um, seems quite contemplative and and almost intellectual. You know, he's quite an interesting yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not what you'd think of. I think like the the Mick Jagger on stage is is the Mick for the purposes of the podcast. I'm doing inverted commas in the air. Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. the Mick Jagger, and then Mick Jagger is you know is Michael Jagger is a different person almost. You know? Absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. I think when I've seen interviews with Mick Jagger, 
he's quite profound, you know. He's mm. quite he's quite philosophical and yeah. deep. Even yeah. even just ask a simple question, he can give quite a deep answer. And you're yeah. Like, wow, that's that's fucking heavy. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's really. As yeah. I think, as a as a touring musician, you have a lot of time to think because there's a lot of time to not do anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you're only working two hours a day effectively. Um, so if you're interested in stuff, then you know you can get into it in quite a big way because you've yeah. got all the time. So and maybe chat about it with your bandmates. And yeah, the, yeah. Or knowing him, you know, whoever socially is around in that town at the time, you'll find someone interesting to talk to and have dinner with them. That yeah. must have been amazing, man. Wow. But I mean, also, yeah, going on to work with Mark Ronson and Amy yeah. Winehouse. Yes. So that was a funny one, only in that it was um, it was a session that it was recording some bass or something. It was one overdub session one day with someone who I sort of vaguely knew as that North London jazzer girl because I'd worked with a, a swear word replacement on her previous album. <laughs> It'd been like an afternoon of you know, having to change various swear words so that radio versions could be done, you know, just really? recording, yeah. Right. Yeah, just recording a damn instead of a shit or something like that so that it could be on Radio 1 or whatever. Um, so it worked with them. And then it was a New York DJ who I hadn't heard of. You know, I didn't know Ronson, I didn't know... I know he'd done an album before, but, you know, I didn't know him. So it's one of those things where it's, you know, serendipitous, really. It just... It was actually... There was a very big bit of luck again, a bit like the sting bit of luck and the John Dowland that I was saying earlier, but Mm -hmm. about three months prior to that session, I had had seen in the studio diary that Tony Visconti was coming in on a session. And I'd been a really big T-Rex fan as a kid. And and obviously he'd done all of that as well as the Bowie stuff. So I was like, I'm doing that one. I'm doing that one. I'm doing that one. <laughs> and so eventually, I, you know, I, I did that one. Um, and it was on a Morrissey session. Um, mm. It was all the B sides for the Ringleader, the Tormentors album, uh, recording and mixed all those. Um, but interestingly, that the Morrissey was into a particularly unusual vocal sound at the time, and and Tony had said to me, look, just just do this sound, and it might sound a bit odd to you, but this is what Morrissey is into. So I was like, yeah, obviously, fine, we'll do that. Um, and then the first session with Mark, we recorded a bit of bass with, I think it was with Stuart Zender, the Jamiroquai guy, who was an amazing bass player. Oh, nice. um, and then I had to do a rough mix of Stop Me If You Think I've Heard This One Before, which was a cover of a Smith song um, and was sung by Daniel Merriweather and was to be the lead single, hopefully, off the album mm-hmm. and um, always sort of in, in vying for it but he wanted Morrissey's approval before he put it out um, so he left he had to do a DJ gig or something so he left and said uh, um, oh Dom if you can just do a rough mix of this one um, so I can send it to Morrissey and get approval uh, by the way Morrissey's never approved a cover before so good luck <laughs> and they left you were the sales guy two years ago weren't you you were the daughter yeah, of the yeah. sales guy you were going to tell you got to tell him so I uh, I only had about three hours left before you know you get like 12 hour slots I didn't have I couldn't spend all night doing it otherwise I would have cost him a thousand pounds in overtime and wouldn't have got hired again so I only had a few hours to do it mm-hmm. but I just thought well I know what vocal sound Morrissey likes at the moment because he likes this slightly odd one that we did back on the on the ringleader the tormentors b-sides so I mixed it with that vocal sound that's incredible isn't and it? Uh, and then Morrissey said yes yeah. so 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 that worked and then it was the first single off the album which worked and that's the album Valerie's on and obviously it was a big album for Mark and so on so bit of serendipity well yeah absolutely yeah I'm, I'm totally a believer in like making your own luck as well like it's something yeah. that is sort of intended to happen not necessarily like 
a fluke. Uh, yeah. That's well, incredible. A like, good um, analogy I heard once was putting yourself in a position to score. So like a striker of a football team. Yeah. So only spends two minutes on a ball, but he spends 88 minutes getting in a position where he can score so that when the ball yeah. goes to him, he can knock it in. Exactly. And I think that's the yeah. way you've kind of got to try and run a career, really, is just always be ready to do the big thing. Mm-hmm. Then occasionally something that's capable of being big will come your way and then you're able to you do it when it comes. Yeah, I can absolutely say similar things about my life. Not really, I mean, sometimes to do with music, but sometimes not. That yeah. like, yeah. yeah, that exact thing. But I mean what's happened to you is incredible those things particularly with someone like Morrissey who's like notoriously difficult to deal with or you know yep. people say that he's difficult to deal with that's the story that's what's reported yeah. um, he was I, I worked with him obviously on the B-side stuff and he was lovely he was fine so exactly I never I, came across that part of him but yeah I really I really enjoyed listening to you talking about that on the the other podcast oh, okay uh, what's the name of it should we just shout out what was it called uh, working class audio working class audio podcast yeah so I'll put that in the link to sure the, yeah yeah why not show notes but I really liked what you said about that because uh, essentially like people can you know someone can be difficult or someone can tell you that they're difficult but uh, yeah you said that um yeah, it comes from a place of insecurity when people yeah. are rude or if they're like, you know, Absolutely. if they're, they say something that seems, you know, offensive. You're, you're so right. It comes from a place of insecurity. It's so, defence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you have that level of empathy, uh, yeah, it's such a great approach to working with somebody. Well, yeah, the, the thing that I do, and actually interestingly, I just, um, I was at NAMM doing a talk about the psychology of recording and mixing and, and studio life. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, so this sort of came into that. And the, the thing that I think um, it's my job as engineer or producer, you know, if you're on that side of the glass, it's your job to make the environment safe and uh, accepting and, and make everybody feel like they can be as creative and, and as crazy as they want and there's no judgment and all of that sort of stuff. And so if anyone is uh, kind of acting out and being a bit difficult, I kind of see that as my failure because I haven't created that environment for them. You know, they're not feeling like they can they can do anything and be anything. Mm-hmm. So I think if you sort of go into sessions with that attitude, you know, I, I haven't really found people to be difficult who a lot of people claim they are. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. So. Like if you go in with the preconception of anything, it's like, for example, if someone tells you about their relationship and they only give you one side of the story. Mm. You know there's a whole other side yeah, of yeah. the story that you're not getting. So, yeah, you have to, like, no preconceptions is, is mm. like, yeah, just take the person for, for what they are. But, yeah, I think that's so true. And I think it really is important in, like, a sound role or even production role to have those, to have that in mind is a really useful thing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You're in a creative job and people have to be creative and, and they can't if they're feeling nervous or shy or you know any of those negative emotions will always dampen creativity and and stop people from pushing themselves because they don't want to feel embarrassed you know yeah so you have to have an environment where people won't feel embarrassed so I mean I I sort of get into it by by suggesting making loads and loads of suggestions and stuff like as a producer or not as an engineer because that's not my job you know as an engineer but as a producer making loads and loads of suggestions and then quickly when one of them isn't working right that was wrong you know, and and making sure I can be wrong, mm-hmm. making it clear that I'm wrong sometimes, and I don't care. Yeah. You know, so that everyone else knows that 
they're supposed to be having ideas and if they're wrong that's part of the process you know we try them all and see what happens and absolutely no one's like my mr midas like no, no, exactly. the idea they have is like the next big thing yeah 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 Johnson has, I think, has this British thing that we all have in Britain. No, not he has it, but the the concept, the preconception of Mark Ronson right. is sort of to dislike him right. because he's successful right. and he's confident and he's really good at what he's doing. Right. He's one of those characters. You know, in, in Britain, we we have this thing of people who are really successful. Yeah, and we tend to like not like them. Yeah, yeah. And I have to admit that early days, I, I there was something I didn't like about him. Right. I don't know whatever it was. But then I saw his talk on sampling. The TED talk he the did. The TED talk. Right. And I realised he's like a super nerdy guy. Yes. He's really into his records. Absolutely. And it yeah. totally shifted my, my opinion of him. 180 yeah. degrees. I was like, I'm, I've been such an idiot. He's a really <laughs> fucking cool guy. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. He is a real kind of, um, you know, he's a real record geek. That was, he started out obviously, um, well, he kind of got famous by DJing, well, Puffy's 40th birthday party with his big kind of thing that, Pushed him up fame wise. Really, well, um, big. <laughs> yeah, it was really big. Um, but he, you know, I think his DJ thing was to always mix a huge variety of styles. Like he wasn't a house DJ or an indie DJ. So you would get anything mixed with anything, mm. but it would work because he would know what keys they were in and what tempos they were, and you know all those sort of things because he was really into that. And you know, a musician as well as a DJ. So um, his sort of his massive knowledge of records and 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 his love of all sorts of genres, um, I think really comes out in the stuff that he's done because like his first album was very much a kind of hip hop album with Ghostface Killer on it and you know Uwe was like the single off that that kind of took off and then his next album version was nothing like that and something completely different and you track his productions he's done all sorts of different productions as well like he did a, he did a really good album that didn't really happen I don't know why but with a band called Rumble Strips which is a guitar band um, and they had a really good song called Daniel's worth checking out. Um, so he's done that as well as the sort of pop stuff like he recently went with Miley Cyrus, didn't he? And then that track with Bruno Mars and then you trace that back to the um, like Valerie and the Amy stuff and they're all kind of quite different sounds but it's because he likes such a variety and has such a knowledge of a variety of, of music that he's able to kind of do all those things well. So yeah, yeah he's definitely... Fantastic. Record geek is where it all started for him, I think. Yeah, yeah. And how was it? I mean, did you did you know anything of his like approach to production of the stuff that you work with him on? Uh, I don't know. I suppose I I got a window because I did the obviously version and uh, Amy's Back to Black, and then there's a track called Cold Shoulder on Adele's first album that we did, and there were a few other uh, artists like that. I got a window where he was doing that sound. Um, so that was interesting to see him do that thing. He had a he had quite a plot with it. It was like the Dap Kings were doing yeah, yeah. the the kind of at least the drums, if not drums and bass sometimes. And if they didn't do the bass, Stuart Zender did the bass, um, the Jamiroquai guy, and then um, he often did the guitars. Or there's a guy called Michael Ty who he's mates with, um, who was Jeff Buckley's guitarist. So he did guitars and some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a sort of little plot of this is how I get this sound. And then a guy called Chris Elliott was the string arranger, well, general orchestral arranger, who's brilliant, a British guy. Mm. Um, so he did all the orchestral percussion and strings and brass arrangements and all of those. So on all of that stuff. So it all had a kind of signature kind of, he had a team that 
this makes it sound like this. Um, which then he shifted the team later to do different things. He worked with different people to do different sounds. So he's one of those. It's not that unusual for a producer who you know isn't an engineer or um, hasn't got a, a background as a professional musician. He is actually a very good guitarist and and stuff, but he's not professionally a guitarist. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you kind of have teams of people that you use, and then when you've done a sound for too long or it feels like too long for you, then you shift to a new team mm -hmm. and you get a whole new sound from the new players that you're working with. So he seemed to be, to me, he seemed to be that sort of producer that did that sort of thing. So yeah. I've known a few other people that have engineered for him for a few years and then he's moved on to something new and started working with another guy. So, nice. Um, and what, how, what, we, what did you do in your role to like, this, what did you do in that recording process? Because those, those are seminal works, mm. like... Um, I, I wrote down the word zeitgeist on the way here for right. for, for those two albums because they are really aren't they version yeah. and back to black yeah are, yeah yeah they are they signs big. of the time yeah they were huge they were yeah. everywhere uh, yeah it's the era that era is so uh, prominent for I think for a lot of people through right. those records yeah what was your what was your role and your approach to to being part of that uh, well you never know at the time when you're doing it whether anything's going to be something whether it's going to happen you know i've worked on some great stuff that never got anywhere you know and i've worked on some not great stuff that did you know but um yeah you said about there was four great vocalists you work with yeah one of which was psychon yeah who's no who yeah. people haven't heard of exactly yeah 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 so which is you know a travesty but there it is there's these things happen sometimes and um and yeah, so you, you, we didn't know at the time that it was going to be good. And then Amy wasn't massive at the time. She'd done the album Frank and it had done okay and she was on Ireland and she was getting to make another album. But, you know, Mark wasn't a big name producer. I think he'd done a couple of tracks on Lily, Al Lily Allen's album that had done quite well. I think that was his biggest sort of thing as a producer at that point. I think two singles off that album maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so so it didn't. it was not like it was set up to be something that was a, a guaranteed smash. Um, and then the first, I know the first day I worked on it, I was recording, first big session did it was a string session, and it was strings on Back to Black and Rehab. And, you know, listening to those songs for the first time, I was like, oh, these are good songs, you know, <laughs> and they, you know, and they are. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was, string sessions are quite stressful, so I was in the middle of making sure all 30 mics were working and 30 pairs of headphones and all of that sort of stuff. But in terms of what I was supposed to be doing, it was, I think, if I remember rightly, he'd sort of, because you always have a chat about, what he's looking for sound wise he was looking for something a bit like that kind of uh maybe phil specter 60s girl group sort of thing out mm. of out of the because i recorded all the orchestral stuff predominantly as well as a few vocals guitars basses things like that but nice. all the strings all the brass all the orchestral percussion um wow. so that was the sort of sound he was looking looking out for me so to get a little bit technical um it meant, uh, as far as I was concerned, that meant ribbon microphones and valve microphones and the sort of the technology that was around then, yeah. that's what I'm going to use then. So I used mm -hmm. that as much as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And also knowing a little bit about Phil Spector's technique um, and, and just how they used to make records back then, I, I would put a couple of like kind of ribbon or, ribbon or valve mics about the room to just get some room sound. The, the studio in Metropolis has got a bit more concrete and glass than you'd necessarily want for that sort of thing, but there was one corner that was all wood panelled, like a kind of curve, a shell shape. So mm -hmm. I put a ribbon microphone up there to just get a slightly warmer room sound. And um, Tom Elmhurst, who mixed that album, uh, all of that stuff, actually, all of Ronson's stuff at the time, 
um, said that he actually used that one a lot for the kind of sound of it and then fed everything else into that. So that was kind of the main sound of the strings from those albums was that that one ribbon mic I put in the top corner just to try and get some warm mono room sound out of it. So That's amazing. And I think the success of that album, you know, like your your work in that must have been integral to it because that was like the core of of you know all the sounds and all of the players and the ambience and yeah. everything yeah uh, yeah i think your part in that is is huge as well you know you were part of that whole the, it's whole a fortunate process. thing for me in that that record is known partly for its sound you know what i mean it's known to have sounded slightly different and good and people like the sound of it it wasn't a kind of stock sounding record it yeah, was something it wasn't like slightly a unusual of 60 yeah. stuff it was like a yeah yeah so modern. um yeah that was that's kind of quite nice to to have done something that's sort of in some way known for sounding good as well as being great songs and great performances and, and everything else you know because obviously that's not my bit yeah. my bit's the sound so yeah but yeah i mean the phil Spector approach is one i absolutely love and it sort of bridges over a little bit in the way you spoke about having like getting intense performances out of vocalists. Mm. Like you, you said in an interview that you uh, like you hear some a producer ask for three takes of the vocal, and then the vocalist leaves, and that's it. Mm. And you know you want to really get the that upsets me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but some people, to be fair, some occasionally a singer does the best thing first or second time. You know, so occasionally. But I'd have to know him pretty well to just stop after three, you know, to know that we're definitely not getting anything. Because I'll always want to go into a bit of detail about how a line's delivered or, you know, trying to get just a bit more emotion about about that, whatever that lyric is, you know, can we get any more out of that? Can we do more with that? Um, exactly. So, that yeah, getting the intensity yeah, of absolutely. performance out of them, which totally reminds me of Phil Spector and the River Deep Mountain High recording sessions. Yeah. Yeah. which were like days of takes with Tina Turner like streaming with sweat, yeah, half yeah. naked, her voice yeah. dying out. Yeah, that totally reminded me of, of what you were saying about getting that real intense performance. Yeah. And you were sort of, em- not emulating, but you were using sort of Phil Spector-style approach to it. I guess, it was, yeah, it was, unconsciously, I think. I think it's just, um, yeah, that wasn't a deliberate, I'm going to do what Spector did, because actually read Spector's uh, biography much more recently and went oh right okay so he does that too or he did that too um although i did work with him a little while back i don't know if I, yeah you I did yeah it. you mentioned that yeah in yeah what um, was that like how how did that feel well that, that was amazing it was amazing because he's sort of like you know you're working with a legend who you thought had stopped you know you thought he'd stopped making records a long time back and then um that was another one where i saw his name in the studio diary and I went, i'm doing that one i'm doing that one i'm doing that one um and yeah so yeah, it was mad. The, the most amazing thing for me that, that really blew me away was him making the wall of sound there and then by, by getting a four-piece band, listening to what they played, and then in his head dividing it each part into two parts, explaining it, their new parts to the band member and kind of double-tracking them with their two separate parts that he'd devised in his head from the original parts yeah. that he'd just heard. Uh, it was just crazy hearing hearing and watching him do that like on the spot creating that kind of wall of sound out of a, a four piece band it was it was mad yeah it's an incredible vision to have isn't it yeah to, to be able to know because we've all been in the studio and you sort of you, you can you can be flowing with ideas but to be the guy at the front going 
this is what you need to be doing. Yeah. It's going to sound good. And this is what you need to be. You need to change what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, to be... And actually, that was the only thing that that fell down a little bit was his... um, That was a bit old school, was his attitude of, I'm in charge. It's my session as the producer. Mm -hmm. Was really, you're kind of the fifth band member. You know, it's our session. I'm working with a band. I'm. They're not working for me. But, you know, back in particularly with how successful he was. But back in the 60s, it was kind of like the producer was in charge and the band was sort of the turn that came in that day and the producer was was the big star. Yeah. And particularly him because he was so successful. Um, and he wrote the songs half the time and, you know, like he wrote River Deep Mountain High and You Lost That Love and Feeling. I think he wrote that one too. And there's so many of those big hits he wrote as well. So he was kind of the star in that in those days. Whereas now that's not really how producers sit in the dynamic. Yeah. It's, it's weird instead of... It's a of, bit more... Yeah. Yeah, a bit more level, isn't it? You're, you're, you're sort of helping someone achieve their vision rather than... Exactly, yeah. Rather than around. them helping you achieve yours as a producer, which is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the wrong way around. Have you ever heard the Moon Landing song, um, The Strangle of Anna? No. Do you know that song? Oh, no. it's a great song. It's a really sort of... Um, Moon Landing's a really good band from Sheffield. Okay. <clears throat> I was born in Sheffield. Were you? Yeah, you wouldn't uh, know from the accent. But. No, no. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, they're a great band. They they did one album a few years ago, and it's like one of my favourite albums ever. Okay. But one of their tracks is very much Phil Spector-esque, and it's right. called The Strangle of Anna. Right, okay. And it's a beautiful song. The video's mental, so what I would say is, like, listen to the song, don't watch the video, and okay. then watch the video and after. And then watch the video. <laughs> <laughs> don't really change it for you, because the video's mental. Um, but yeah, it's a really good sort of uh, Phil Spector-esque okay. production uh, probably more of a we're definitely going down the Phil Spector sure. avenue than than what the stuff you did with Mark Ronson. Yeah, I yeah. just wanted to mention that because yeah, it's, yeah. it's just such a great song. Cool, I'll check it out. What do you do currently then? What what are the sort of things that you work on in your yeah, I guess we should maybe talk about the place that we're sat now. Like, right, we're sat in, in the rural, studio. Rural, yeah, beautiful rural location. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, walls of modular. Yeah, lots of synths, lots of outboard. Um, yeah, I just, I, I do well. I try, I try and keep things as varied as possible. Uh, I wouldn't ever want to be someone that gets known for one thing, really. I, just because musically, I, I like quite a lot of stuff, I guess. So I wouldn't want to just be a rock guy or just be a a pop guy or something like that. So, um, mm. what have I done? I don't. I find I'm doing mostly mixing these days. That tends to be what comes my way, and a bit of producing. I tend to. I find I tend to produce solo artists. I don't know why that's mostly what happens to me, but it's just. I guess I looked at my discography the other day and found it was almost entirely solo artists. <laughs> like, that's weird. I wonder why that is. But I guess it must happen after a little while. People see you as that sort of thing. So maybe mm-hmm. bands wouldn't come to me so much because they go, "Oh, he works with solo artists." Whereas that's not the case, but. It's just how it's landed. Mm. Um, so at the moment, I'm sort of mixing some stuff and I'm producing other stuff. And then I try and do other things that are like sample packs and um, trying to get into music library stuff as well. Because I think that's quite an interesting one to do. Um, yeah. That's kind of a next, it's in the back of my head as the next project is to do a music library album. Um, and... And then I do a bit of teaching as well. And I've just set up a company called The Mix Consultancy, um, sort of a website um, venture thing, which is quite exciting. So that's sort of, that's involving a bit of my time at the moment and that seems to be taking off quite well. So that's that's good too. Cool. Yeah, definitely want to talk about the 
the mixed consultancy. But yeah, going to uh, teaching, mm. you said you learned a lot through teaching. Yeah, it's funny actually, because there is a phrase that I discovered afterwards, which I think bears um, holds a lot of truth, which is if you really want to learn how to do something, then teach someone else how to do it. Because they sort of, the students approach you with questions that you hadn't considered, but you realise that whatever question that was, that might have been part of your process that you'd never really defined and nailed down. So then you have to, to explain it to somebody and then you go, oh, that's the best way of doing that. And so I'll do it that way from, from now on because I've kind of defined in my head now how to do that. So mm. there's a lot of sort of ways that you can um, that you can fine-tune what you do by having to teach someone else how to do it. And as well, you know, because I've got students... I, do, I teach the MA... I tutor the MA students at Leeds College of Music in music production so these are guys that are doing it's a one-year course and they're um obviously after this point they're out on their own and they're going to try and make money from from what they do so Mm -hmm. i do try and get as much giving them advice about what they're doing in terms of production or mixing also setting up a studio and you know how to what gear needs to be bought which is very little and what gear you don't need which is almost all of it (laughs) (laughs) and and you know how to work with you know invoicing clients how to make sure you get paid and all these sort of things that that it's just useful to know you know so there's a lot of that that as well you know it sort of reflects back on you when someone asks you what you do about that you go yeah i should really get get that down like in contracts i'd never really got that together properly until you know i was talking to my students about it and then i thought why have i not actually got this nailed down so now i have i've got a lawyer to draw up a very standard mixing contract and a very standard production contract which is you know it's one of those ones that i said to the lawyer this has to be one that nobody argues with so obviously i'm not going to be unfair to myself but also there's not going to be any of those little closets some people stick in to get a little bit extra cut of the cake because yeah. i don't want to be discussing this for days i just want them to see it go that seems fair show it to their lawyer and he goes that seems fair, and then we just carry on with the work, you know. So yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I did have, I had a friend. I've got a friend, our lead singer in our band. Um, he he was in his teens. He's now like in his sort of maybe about fifty or something. Um, but when he was in his teens and late teens, he, they had a lot of record companies interested in mm-hmm. them, and um, their manager refused to sign one of the contracts that they were given one time because it said in the contract that if. If the if humanity went into outer space, they would take all of the royalties yep. for the song if it was played in space. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's kind of weird, but yeah. Now, now the yeah, contracts do strange. have now the contracts do have global and universal sort of thing. They're written in that the contract holds outside of the planet is now standard in in the. Uh, like major label contract. That's hilarious, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That's so funny. But their music does get played on the space station. So there you go. Ch- PRS. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Coming Vital PRS, <laughs> the one space station we have. <laughs> that is they have Valerie on loop in the space station. <laughs> They're all dancing. That's, yeah, really funny. Really funny. Yeah, but yeah, I you also did a talk at the SAE in London, which you mentioned earlier, which was really useful uh, for me as someone who sort of makes makes music and mm-hmm. dabbles with various bits and pieces. Yeah, on the elements that perhaps you wouldn't think about, like setting your rates for somebody, mm-hmm. which um, which I find very very difficult to deal with. Yes, That's something that I actually really struggle with, and I end up just underselling everything. Right. Okay. It's, uh, but it's an important part yeah, of doing what you do. It is. Isn't yeah. It? Set a rate that you think is based on 
what you need to earn, really, you know, and this, which has to be reasonable compared to what other people are charging, what you think you're worth. So, so you've got to kind of find a good balancing point between what you need to earn and, and what you can charge and then just say, that's me. And if you need to cut it down, then cut it down if somebody comes in with... Because what I sometimes say is, like, this is what it is for one track. If you're coming with five, then we can talk. You know, if you want to talk about prices, then if you're coming with five tracks, we might be able to talk. Mm -hmm. But if you're coming with one track, that's one track. That's how much it is. Because there's economies of scale in your working when there are five. You know, like if you do mix five songs that are supposed to be part of an EP, then, you know, the drum sound probably isn't supposed to change too much. So you can rely on what you did in the last mix, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and pull that in and save yourself a bit of time. So there's stuff like that that can be done. But, yeah, setting rates is something that... I, I never really struggle with asking people for money, which I think I know is something that a lot of people do. Yeah, and and that's I think that's been a big benefit to me as I've never worried about that. So uh, maybe it comes back to door to door sales and just saying, "Here's this. This is how much it is. Give me the money." Yeah, true. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe it's that again. There were lots of there were lots of like salient points throughout your talk, which I right. noted down. Like I, I t- actually took this book, so it was nice to come on the train oh, okay. and get back through that as through well. Um, but one thing that really struck me was like the natural, uh, like your natural approach to recording. Okay. Um, and leaving in things like breaths or accentuating the breaths. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, background buzzing of the amplifier, leaving that in when the yeah when there was a, there was a drop. There was a two, uh, track that you played where all of the sounds dropped out, but you left in like the sing cymbal ringing. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. sound of the amp. Yeah, so you yeah. knew it was still. It's like you're still in the room. To the listener, they're still in the room. If you killed everything, then they're listening to a record, or a recording, which. Is a little bit sterilised, whereas if you leave some of those little elements that would be there if you were standing in the room, then subconsciously they feel like they're still in the middle of it. So, yeah, I like that sort of stuff in a record. So Absolutely. I think it's a really good approach. Uh, like, uh, yeah, you can see... I could see people thinking, oh, I'll just fade that bit down because yeah. it's not the track, but it's then you're right, so it becomes artificial. Yeah. Um, like, for example, you have no vocal booth here. Yes, Exactly. Which is fantastic. Like I think that's such a great thing because you talked on the on the uh, the podcast about um, yeah the the awkwardness of one guy being in a room or girl with mm. with headphones on, like listening to a click track in an isolated yeah. environment and then having the talk back of no can you just do yeah, that yeah. a bit and yeah yeah it's so much free and natural without the booth isn't yeah it? and actually like, the way because be. I position it with a singer behind me. That also helps, I think, in that they don't have me staring at them while they're singing, you know. So there's there's a little bit of that reduced as well. So I'll yeah. be I'll be facing the computer while they're singing, and they're looking at the back of my head. So they've not got somebody glaring at them, and they can perform however they want. And then I just spin around, and then we have a talk about it, headphones off, and we're just chatting, which is a much more kind of personal, intimate environment than than that, you know, the kind of talk-back mic thing where it's, it's you know, there's a disassociated voice behind a sheet of glass and who knows what they're thinking, you know. So, yeah, yeah I much prefer this way of recording than, than the kind of booth, booth way of doing it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think you will get a more natural, more comfortable uh, recording out of it. And, yeah. and also just for the person that comes here and plays, it, it, it will be a more connected experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the way I, you know, I... The, I how intense I like to go with getting the best performance out of someone, I think it just helps if you're in the same room. I think it's been much harder for me if they were separated and in a different room. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of um, I much prefer it this way. And do you do you ever do you mic up the space in the room sometimes a bit like you did with Mark Ronson? Uh, not to be honest, I don't do 
it's not quite a kind of drums room so uh, and or strings it's not quite big enough to be that sort of full of sound so the mm-hmm. piano is the only thing that that really is big acoustically in the room so I do acoustic guitars and piano in here um, in which case a bit you know I'll get some kind of distant stuff on the piano I mean it's not a lot of point in acoustic guitar because it's not really loud enough to get that mm-hmm. but but the piano I've, I've tried a few different things uh, unfortunately because it's like my listening position is kind of right by that which is intentionally slightly dead so there, you aren't getting that crazy kind of live thing like the corner of a live room would be so mm-hmm. there isn't that much to play with in terms of that but um you can always do a bit of a playing around see what you get yeah it's yeah i mean you've got good space to sort of try things out here as well haven't you like it's um yeah it's nice and open and you've got really high ceiling yeah yeah it's a really enviable enviable studio you've got it's great cool yeah so what do you do um what sort of sample packs have you worked on what what sort of I tend I've done synth ones tend to be my thing just because I've got that's really easy for me and I've got all the kind of I've got a wall of modular so it's quite an interesting range of sounds that I can you know I can get all sorts of stuff going on um, and it's something that I can just do on my own in my own time um, which helps as well so I can kind of dip in and out if I have you know half a day spare then I'll I'll nip into a, a sample pack and add a few sounds to it and stuff so that's what it's tended to be I'm kind of quite interested to do sort of drum ones and stuff like that I'd like to do a few more because I'm an engineer you know I'm not you know by trade I'm an engineer not a synth player Mm -hmm. so um, I could certainly do some quite good ones of those but it's actually it's just the economics of it is um, I'd have to hire a drummer and a room and do all that and I'd have to put quite a lot of money in up front to get what I wanted Mm -hmm. Um, and I haven't got around to bothering to do that yet to sort of invest in the couple of grand that I'd have to put in up front before I even really started. Yeah. Whereas the synth stuff is, um, I've already done that because I've bought the synths. It's all there, so, yeah, yeah. It's all there, ready to it's go. It's an yeah. easy one to just kind of, uh, to fire them up and then and then get something cool out of them. Good. So you did, you did um, Stranger Synths, which was mm-hmm. like uh, Stranger Things inspired yeah. in the 80s. Which has actually came because loads of people were emailing me saying, have you seen this Netflix? Because I, I put an EP out a few years back just four tracks, but um, there's a load of people emailed me when Stranger Things came out and said, have you seen this? Because the music on it is right up your street. It's exactly like the sort of thing you do. So, nice. Um, so then I, I, I checked and loved the series, brilliant series, and great soundtrack by Survive, wasn't it, with the guys from, or two of the guys from Survive who did the soundtrack? I don't anyway. know. Um, but yeah, very much my sort of thing. So then I thought, well, you know, I'll just kind of basically riff on those kind of sounds because it's what I naturally do anyway and just do a load of stuff. But um, if you sort of flag it up as a bit like Stranger Things, then I think people, it's almost like a, like a shorthand. People understand what sort of sounds you're making before you... Because I could, I could mm-hmm. say it's like Don Morley's EP and nobody knows what that means. But if you say it's like Stranger Things, they go, oh, those oh, sort yeah. of sounds. It's okay, yeah. Lo-fi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big fat analogs in things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, nice. yeah, that's what it's out quite well. Good. And you've, you've also done something for Sample Phonics, Dirty Modular. Yeah, that was, was quite that? fun. Yeah, so that was um, that was a whole load of sounds. So I provided all the sounds and then we kind of worked out the interface together. So I did a load of sounds on my modular as multi-samples kind of across the keyboard. And then they created this kind of uh, an instrument where you could select any two of the range of sounds that I had and then... And then and then load them into the instrument, and then obviously you've got mixes of those, and then 
envelope control, filter control, effects control of those things. But also I added, I got them to add in things like um, a small sequencer in there that you could route around. So you could route it to the notes if you wanted, but you could route it more importantly to like the filter cutoff, which mm. I really like just being able to play a note and then having a sequencer play a tune with the filter cutoff, which is, you know, yeah. a really great, great sound. So that, 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 um, that enabled that to happen with that. So it's a really good, really good uh, kind of sample um, uh, instrument. Um, yeah, and, uh, and lots, of, lots of good sounds, actually. That, that was saying it myself. Uh, lots of good sounds, but I sort of edged a lot to kind of dirty, slightly sometimes uh, distorted or at least saturated noises and stuff like that because I quite like that sort of stuff. So yeah. that's why they ended up calling it dirty modular because it was, uh, it's not clean and pristine. It's not all sine waves, you know. It's kind of dirtier. Nice. Yeah, yeah, nice harmonic slice. Yeah, like, plenty of that. I wanted to ask if you had any mentors throughout your career that like helped you or like yeah inspired you. Along yeah, the way. well, certainly. So uh, the guy that gave me my first job, Mike Exeter, uh, has definitely um, been a big help. You know, obviously he gave me my first job, so that's a good start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the, from knowing nothing really, I'd, I'd been in my bedroom playing with an eight track and a and a mixer and stuff to getting a job in a studio. You know, there's a gulf of knowledge. I didn't do a course at the time so um so it was in at the deep end but he had a lot of sort of faith in me and and got me to do some sort of basic engineering gigs very early on and and so that was Mike was a real help that was really um and it's nice to still be friends with him um and also yeah. actually weirdly the guy who was the producer in the first studio where I knocked on the door and they said yeah come in you can make tea for nothing it was a guy called Simon Hanhart and um and he so he was the one that hooked me up with Mike to get the job at the studio in depth and then when I first came down to London to get work he hooked me up with somebody who could give me some freelance assisting in a studio which isn't there anymore called Master Rock but um, Mm -hmm. the fact that I had worked at Master Rock meant I got the Metropolis job because they knew that if I was trusted at Master Rock then they they could trust me at Metropolis because they were although Master Rock was smaller they had a very expensive focus right desk and they had an SSL and it was like the quality level was the same, even though it was a smaller studio. So, mm-hmm. so Simon Hanhart has been uh, just seemed to turn up at the right time when it needed a bit of a hand early on. So that was uh, so yeah, he's he's been hugely helpful. And both of them actually were very good when I was very early on, just explaining some basics about how things worked and 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 sort of teaching me some stuff about engineering that that you know you would have learned on a course, but I didn't. So mm-hmm. that they didn't need to teach me, but they did. So that was that was very good of them. Um, later on, Chris Potter was probably the biggest one because I spent so much time watching and listening to him mix and produce and stuff as as his assistant. And sometimes I did a bit of engineering for him too. So um, he was a huge help. And then I shared a room with him, obviously, for for five years. So um, yeah, I still think I try and copy his mixes when I'm mixing. <laughs> I still think whenever I'm mixing, I'm trying to sort of make it sound a bit like how in my head Chris would make it sound because I just love his mixes. Always sound so great. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that everyone's got a different style, but I do particularly like his. So um, that's always been a kind of a mentor sort of thing or something I've been aiming at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, I think you do have, there's some people you just connect with, isn't there, that you work with and yeah. you connect with them, they connect with you. And Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure you also along the way were asking questions a lot. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and 
and they all those people were very good at answering that they, they felt that some people feel a responsibility to pass the knowledge on i think and they were part of that kind of breed and i certainly am as well that mm-hmm. that um it's not because uh, i know some people get get words like I've, I've spent all this time accumulating this knowledge if i pass that on then the next person's just going to be on nick all my gigs but it doesn't mm-hmm. really work like that because it's not just the fact that you know these things it's how you put them into practice and also you know how you work with people and and who you know and all those things are all part of how you get work so um those sort of things you're never going to lose work because you've told somebody how to work a compressor or, or how better to EQ or invoice or run a studio business or anything like that. That's never going to impact your client list. So Definitely. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. And on, on like a, a universal level, passing on the knowledge is like that's what's supposed to happen. Exactly. Yeah, that's how you got it. You know, because <laughs> yeah, somebody yeah. passed it on to you. You didn't learn it all in a vacuum. You read things, you watched YouTube videos, you sat with somebody and asked them questions. All of those things are how you accumulated knowledge. So you need to be part of that passing on. And that's one of the things that, that worries me slightly about the way the industry is built now, the recording industry, because it's mostly people like me in a room on my own, or maybe you might have one assistant that you employ. Um, and that's, that's quite an insular way for the knowledge to, to exist. So when I was learning in the 90s and the, the sort of turn of the century, I was in a big studio, you know, one of the biggest, but most people made records in studios. And so there were freelance engineers who dotted around London, all the world, you know, and I assisted all manner of people. And, um, you know, some of the, uh, fortunately for me, some of the best engineers and producers in the world. And they were generally, well, they were all really nice people because tend to be in this industry because nobody wants to spend 12 hours a day in a room with someone who isn't pleasant to spend time with so I would get on with them and I would ask them questions and I would learn because I had all this knowledge that was just coming in and out of the studio that I was working at now with it's probably only 20-30% of the studios that were around when I was learning that are still around so that is not happening anywhere near as much as it used to which does worry me about how people are learning from here on in you know are they only learning from whatever Chris Lord Algae says on his pure mix videos or mix with masters or whatever ones, you know, there's a couple of guys that do quite a bit of that. Mm -hmm. Is that all you're learning from? Because that's fine, but it's, and there's certainly a lot to be learned that way, but there's a passive learning there where you're not able to ask questions. You're not able to seek the gaps in your knowledge. You're only able to find out what they're talking about that they think is important yeah um which is actually why i set up the mixed consultancy thing that i set up recently that we mentioned earlier because it's an opportunity for people to upload their music and for me to go right here's what i would do with this mix you know your mix as you've got it as far as you've got it but you know it's not as good as the stuff you hear on the radio so here's 10 things i can hear that i think are wrong or that could be better and for each one, here's two, two ways of fixing it. You know, just pick which one. And some of these things you'll agree with and some of them you won't. But generally, you're going to get a better mix at the end of it. And it's it's a much more interactive way to learn than simply going, my mix doesn't sound right. I'm going to watch 10 YouTube videos and see if that tells me why my mix isn't right. Which, you know, isn't yeah. going to because YouTube isn't listening to your mix and with experienced ears and saying... This Definitely. is how it works. Definitely. And and like you said in your talk, there aren't really hard and fast rules for the snare in music. No, exactly. It's, no, no. It's totally down to... It'd be to, different in every song. Yeah, so yeah. looking, I think looking for those definite 
sweet spots of compressor settings and EQs is not possibly the best approach because no. you may well just follow a formula every time you make exactly. music exactly which will work sometimes and other times it won't and you wonder why it isn't working it's because instead of learning how to use your ears and really listen to things you've learned how to use that preset you know which is not how you learn to engineer that's just how you learn to use presets mm-hmm. it's more of um, kind of a software learning um, and that's actually one of the greatest things when I'm that I love when I'm teaching is is over a period of time working with somebody and be it with somebody who uses a mix consultancy a lot or one of my students that I'm tutoring is you can hear their mixes getting better and better every time and you know they're hearing their their critical listening is getting better and better and they're able to identify where the problems in their mix are and then fix them and that's the biggest thing is actually being able to hear where the problems are knowing what the problems are which um, the biggest moment for me I don't know if I talked about this on the working class audio podcast or not but one of the sort of driving factors behind the mix consultancy was was three days I spent while I was working on a project where it was a very big artist that had decades worth of material um, and only obviously some of it was released and there was loads of other songs recorded and we were just essentially digitising the back catalogue but they wanted rough mixes of all the stuff they hadn't released as well so they could be reminded of songs they've written that they maybe forgot about and maybe some of them will turn up on the next record mm-hmm. which is a fairly standard kind of thing that happens but yeah. but uh, I was only assisting that and then the engineer I was working for was ill um, so um, the guy that was producing it um, stepped in and said right Dom if you because it was quite late on in my assisting stage so it was kind of reasonably decent engineering he said if you can set up all these mixes and then I'll just come in and do like half an hour at the end and finish, finish them off so what it meant for me was I got the mix as good as I could get it and then this guy who had been doing it for 10, 15 years longer than me came in and did a few tweaks which I'd watched you know like a hawk what tweaks he did and it was much better I was like oh right so when it's sounding like that he does this and then that makes it sound like this and I was able to learn by seeing somebody more experienced than me pull something better out of what you know as far as I managed to take it so that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the mix consultants is you know give people a kind of lift up to push it over the edge yeah great so yeah what's the basis behind the mixed consultancy then what, what's the process what what sort of happened oh well um the the basic one is you uh you have your mix you've got it as good as you can get it but you want it to be better so you go to my website you upload onto the site and then there's a few boxes you can fill out like what influences and, and sort of things that can help me musically guide you if i know what you're aiming for you know sonically mm-hmm. um so those sort of things and then uh, I get it sent to me and then I have a listen and within 48 hours working hours I'm not working all weekend uh, so within a couple of working days I'll have sent you back a PDF which will be full of here's all the things that you can try on this mix to to, to get it better um, here's the things that I've heard that could be better and here's how to make it better right okay that's really good so you're not necessarily doing that for them no no it's, it's a oh, teaching thing so so I'm just getting a stereo track and I'm going right these are all the things that, and I'll sit here in my studio with you know my headphones and it's a good sounding room and I'll get in on the stereo track with a few I'm thinking mm, like it might be like four and a half K's a bit rough there so I'll push four and a half K up and go yeah it's in the guitars pull it down okay about 1 dB so it'll be like I turned down 1dB at 4.5k and the guitar sounded better we'll try that and then it's a load of little things to try and then once they've tried that you know the mix is in uh, you know a better place and then they can take it on from there with the things that they're then hearing as a reaction to what I've suggested and actually there's there's a platinum stage if you want if you want to if you're as anal as me where um, uh, you pay a bit more and once you've done the first one 
got got it sounding good. You then send it back to me, and I'll give you some more notes on where it is now. Mm-hmm. And then we do a third one after that as well, where I go right. Okay, and, and normally by the third thing, it's like there's two or three things we need to look at. And after that, it's like it's golden. It's really good. Great. Um, that must be a great process to oversee. You know, to see that thing grow and yeah. like nurture someone yeah. else's. And when, when people like repeat customers and stuff, when they come back and they've got the next song, you're like, oh yeah, that's a bit better than you, you know. Your mix is better than last time. You know, you've you've learnt from what we did last time, and and those holes aren't there anymore. You know, you, you've got those bits of knowledge now, so you've built on that. Yeah. Um, and what I'm rolling out next, which I just need to get sorted, there's a few technical things to sort. Um, is Skype tutorials where people can just you know, basically buy an hour of my time on Skype mm-hmm. and talk about whatever they want to talk about. So I imagine Religion. some people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't mention Brexit. <laughs> uh, I imagine a lot of it would be about, you know, someone might upload a track and want to discuss it in person rather than just get a PDF if they're that kind of, that's the way they learn. Yeah, yeah But yeah, But yeah. equally, if somebody wants to talk about how to set up a studio or how to do invoicing so they always get paid or things like that, then, you know, they, they, we can cover that too. That's a really good idea. Because um, there were, yeah, I think, yeah, you do have a lot of knowledge and experience in in a range of things, not just the mixing. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. I noted down as well. Um, yeah, like the natural things that you threw into it. Um, uh, like managing a session, being in... Ah, this was a great one. Got and I, I, I just couldn't believe that that's... Uh, something that you can do is looking at the session files before you get them rarely yeah rarely but if you can to be able to do that. get a look at the session file before you uh before you quote then it means you know exactly what you're quoting on mm. only from having been stung by quoting on something i thought sounded really simple and was a total nightmare yeah. and ended up essentially making on an hourly rate nothing because it took me so long to get this thing sounding good yeah, I think I think that is a great thing to just have in the bank if people are thinking about it or they're not sure. Yeah, I mean, even just like a screenshot of what the files look like, just I don't yeah. know. Yeah, like, you can. Well, you can actually that. tell how well the session's been put together, and that does give you a bit of an inkling into possibly how well it's been recorded and therefore what work you've got. You know, if it looks professional, tidy, everything's labelled, everything's sorted. This is a meticulous person who takes care. If it's audio <laughs> one to thirty six and it's yeah. all you know just from Different start to finish, yeah, and it's like oh, okay, this guy is messy, <laughs> so I'm going to have to do some pulling apart here. Yeah, that's what you get a session from me looking like. Okay, probably. Um, yeah, and okay, this isn't um, this isn't to do with the mix consultancy, sure. but it's a great thing that you pointed out about limiting the mix that you're giving out until you're paid the rest yeah. of the fee. It's twofold, really. That. Um, so the idea being, um, it actually started from when I was first getting this, my mixes to proper, be properly mastered because they were being released. And, and what I was finding was I was doing all these kind of these dynamic moves, all my rides and you know automation and stuff. And then, and then it would go to mastering and get limited and some of those dynamics would be lost. And I'd be a bit disappointed that they weren't kind of moving as much as I'd wanted them to. Mm-hmm. So my sort of process from then on was, well, once I get to doing all the dynamic bits of my mix, all the rides and the, the jumps and stuff, then I'll have a limiter on just taking sort of 3dB off or something to sort of simulate what is going to happen when it gets limited. So there are still the dynamics that I want when it's gone through the mastering process. So I sort of did did that as a mixing thing and then thought well obviously I've got to deliver to the client to check out the mix they've got to hear the version with that limiter on because otherwise it's going to sound a bit overly dynamic it's going to be too much Mm -hmm. so I was delivering these 
just you know mixes for clients to check out always had this limiter on so I'd, I'd mark it up as I think it's DMLC Don Morley limited limit limiter copy or limited copy um, so that they knew that that couldn't be given to mastering because it's already limited so don't master from that one and then um, in the process realized that actually you know for your invoicing and making sure you get paid if that's the only thing you you're releasing to a client until they pay the bill they've getting a full quality wav they can have a 96k if they want they're getting a full quality wav of the mix they know how it's going to sound you know mm. that you're not getting some reduced quality mp3 so that they don't try and master from that they're getting a full quality thing but you can't master from it you know a mastering engineer anyone worth his salt isn't going to take that because it's already been limited by me so um so it means that I can make sure everything's approved and everything's good, and then when I'm paid, then they have the unlimited web, yeah. which they can then master from and release. Yeah, it's, I think it's a great way of working, especially when people are so remote nowadays yeah. from across, you know, it could be all anywhere in the world, yeah. and essentially you just know someone's email address or exactly. phone number if yeah. you're working for them, and it's a big job. Yeah, you, uh, those sorts of processes are good. Yeah, it's a good yeah. little detail. Like I, I haven't met most of my mixing clients, and possibly never will. Right. You know, a lot of them aren't in the country, so you don't live here. So, um, yeah. but uh, but yeah, it just it just means you've got a little bit of the control that you need to make sure if anybody was thinking of pulling a fast one, they can't. Yeah. You know, because you hold the files that they actually need. They can approve everything as much as as much as they want, but they can't actually go anywhere without having paid you. Yeah, I think every there are like scare stories. I know a few fairly well established producers who do have scare stories of mm. people who do, yeah, take take uh, take the piss a bit um so yeah it's good to have those things yeah I've, uh, yeah i did have somebody once you know tried that on a little bit and it's like we don't have to we've realized in our contract that if we say this we don't have to pay you for the end of it and i said okay if you can do that if you want and i'm just going to put all of this in the bin and they went, no 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 we want them and i said but you don't approve them yeah well, we didn't approve this little bit but we want this bit and like it was just this ridiculous little contractual juggle that they tried to get to get everything out of me without paying me um, Crazy. So I just sat there and said, "You're not getting it until, till you know, till I'm paid." Just send yeah, crunchy MP3 is all you're gonna get. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Something you can't use basically will be all you get until you pay. Yeah, um, I guess talk it. You talked about um, like passage passage of knowledge. You know, working mm-hmm. groups of people in the larger studios, mm-hmm. and then yeah. the way many people work nowadays uh, in smaller studios with like one or two people around. Yeah, yeah. You did speak in your talk about working on your own mm-hmm. and working in isolation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, it's something that I do. I work freelance, so yeah. I work. Essentially, I could just stay in my bedroom all yeah. day, every day, working five days a week. Yeah. So, um, but l- as you pointed out, y- y- you can go a bit mad doing that. Yep. I think we've all been <laughs> yep. at that point somewhere. So, yeah, what do you do to sort of combat that? And, and what's your approach to working by yourself? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's the, the getting out and teaching is the thing that I do, really, because it because um, I'm still mostly mixing and, um, and I like... Th- this room where I work, you know, I like my studio. Um, I don't want to commute into London. See, in theory, I could commute into London every day, find a room at like somewhere like the Tile Yard or somewhere where there's a community of, of mm-hmm. people. And then that would work because you're surrounded by people that, you know, you're on the same wavelength, they do the same thing as you. 
and that would all work. But you, my family situation means that would be really difficult and make things much harder. And um, and I like this studio. I've spent a while it's building beautiful. it, and it's, yeah, it's lovely. It's a nice place. So I've got to um, I've got to stick with with what I've got in terms of that. Um, so uh, so if I schedule in once every couple of weeks that my working day is going somewhere and talking to a lot of people and answering a lot of questions and stuff like that. I find that that's a good enough balance for me to, um, to carry on spending the rest of the time essentially sat on my own, you know, mm. being on my own in a room. And, you know, obviously I talk to people in the evening and I go home and I see friends and see family and all that sort of stuff. But, but the fact that, you know, your working life is solitary is, is an unhealthy thing and, and something to be, to, you, you know, you've got to schedule people into your working life somehow and if you're I, I can understand if you're a writer or if you do stuff that's that's mostly like on a laptop you can work in a cafe mm-hmm. or a bookshop or something like that and that, that's much easier to to be amongst people and amongst life but I have mm-hmm. to be isolated because uh, not only do I make noise but I can't have any noise impinging on my environment yeah true yeah so I can't be in a in an office block I can't set a studio up in an office block and be around loads of people, but then I can hear their radio through the wall and then I can't mix, you know, or I can't play, I can't record guitar because it's going to drive them insane. So I do have to be in a studio and that has to be a level of isolation. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's trickier than the non-studio people. I think, I think they've got more options than I have. Mm. Um, So you just have to work a little bit harder at finding the way that you get people into your, into your working environment. Yeah. One really great piece of advice to me was, schedule your leisure time as well as scheduling your work time okay because what tends to happen is i'll schedule like monday to friday solid work but then in the evenings go oh i could do that thing and you know yeah. and then just talk myself out of yeah going to the cinema Leaving the house or going yeah. to some you know yeah. yeah so um yeah it was such a great piece of advice for a friend yeah. lucy said uh, she was like yeah you need to schedule your leisure time and it works so well because i'm like friday all day is just whatever i want to do like creative day right no work right you know right. so yeah it's yeah like the, i think yeah that was really good advice yeah it's You're, like there's a good quote from uh, banksy and he said leave the house before you find a reason not to <laughs> that's, that's great you know in the evening just get out before you talk yourself out of getting out yeah that's, that's a good, good idea yeah well um i know you mentioned running you like to run yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely that's i mean that's a good it's good for health anyway you know you've got to do something to keep yourself kind of keep your heart going but um but i find psychologically running's really good it's like um i don't know what it is it just sort of it's like a reset button for the brain you know you sort of you come back from a run and everything's you've got clarity you know you know what you need to be doing for the day you know you've sort of got a plan mm. and any sort of i tend these days not i try not to listen to podcasts or music or anything like that i try to just be clear so that i can just go through thoughts and plans and anything that i'm sort of thinking oh i need to get that together because i've essentially got three jobs with um you know the stuff that i have in a studio mixing and, and doing stuff for clients and then i've got the college that you know i, I do stuff for and then the mix consultancy is a business that outside of actually doing the mix consulting there's all the business building stuff you have to do as well and mm-hmm. working on marketing and, and whatever yeah, so yeah, there's quite yeah. a lot to think about with all those different balls in the air as well as having three small children which you know is well, its own three kids. yeah yeah <laughs> 10 8 and 5 so they have stuff that needs dealing with as well because they're not very big yeah well um so it's a lot of balls to juggle but then if you know if i have a run for 40 minutes i've kind of got i'll at least have some of my things in my head planned you know some of the things that were just 
in the back of your head thinking, I've got to sort that out. You know, you'll have a plan for it. Mm. Um, I don't know what it is about running that does it. Maybe for other people, cycling does the same thing. But for me, running yeah, helps I that to happen. One of the chemical brothers said about cycling that it was his way of like getting everything in perspective. And, right, right. And cycling, yeah, I mean, cycling's really good for that. But I'm in a similar position. Like I, I had an ankle operation a couple of years ago and I couldn't run for about a year. Right. And I'm quite, I'm quite... Uh, athletic I've always played football and stuff right. so um, yeah I got into running over the last sort of six months and um, it is yeah I totally agree with what you're saying it, you get especially with no music or anything to listen to yeah. you get a clarity and a yeah. sort of peace that you, you won't yeah. find and um, I think the better you are at it the, the better you get at it the more uh, accustomed to doing it you are the more space you've got to think about stuff yeah because I think in the beginning when you first start running you're like oh god this is this is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my legs hurt. A lot of the time, you're just now. persuading yourself to carry on. Yeah, yeah. Come on, you've only been running for two minutes. Yeah. So yeah, I think as you get better at it, like I did this morning, went for a run, and I was thinking about this interview and what was going to happen, and, right. and how yeah. maybe maybe putting some of my notes into a bit of a slight order. Yeah, it was just great for, to just release that. Where yeah, yeah, it's a really good thing. I love it, and I will have to. Just say that the park park run. I don't know if you've heard about park running. Yeah, I haven't done one, but oh, so good. It's five k, so isn't it? Yeah, five k every Saturday morning. Right, it's brilliant. Like we, there's about five or six hundred people that do it where I, where I live really? in one of the parks, and um, it's a great spirited thing. And I'm really competitive. I'm quite right, a competitive okay. person, so. Um, I actually I'm racing like the amateur runners now. Like, okay. I'm, I'm up at the front. I got 38 last week, which is pretty good. That's good. Six, five, six, seven hundred. That's very good. So yeah, it's like fun. And what if time you, is that? What what time are you doing? Five. Good games? question. Uh, my PB is 21 minutes 47 seconds. Whoa, that's fast. That is good. Yeah. You're much faster than me. Am I good? I, I, oh, I it's pref- 20. Is it 20? Yeah, it's around. I prefer to go distance. That's always what I'm aiming for. Is to go. Go another mile rather than to go faster. Nice. I'd rather do you know eight miles than than cool. three quickly. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think equally valid. Both, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both yeah, approaches exactly. really. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a great release. It's yeah. so much fun, and it's yeah, you're not thinking about the the normal. The thought processes can change, can't they? When you yeah. do that, you sort of. Yeah. I find it's easier to like prioritize things. Yeah, weirdly, I don't know why it is, but there's just something about why you're. You know, obviously doing long cardio or something, or maybe because you're out outside in the open air and, you know, there's no screens to look at. Because like, I do it in the gym when the weather's terrible. Because I've got a goal to run a 1,000 miles this year, so I have to kind of keep really? on top of it. Wow, so, nice. So, I, you know, if the weather's terrible, then I'll just go to the gym and, and run there. And it's not as easy. And I think it's because there are kind of screens and stuff about and you can just get sucked into watching BBC News and reading the subtitles, you know. Yeah. Whereas if you're sort of running across a field or down a country lane or something like, obviously I'm out in the country, so all that, I think it's um, it's easier to kind of get the brain into gear into what you want to be doing, mm. what you want to be sort of thinking about and sorting your day out. I think as well, there was something that came up, I thought the other day, if you're doing long kind of cardio training, I think physically it's much easier than mentally like you know if i want to do so currently i'm running five or six miles when i go for a run mm. if i wanted to run eight there is no reason why my body can not run eight it could do it without any struggle at all but my brain wouldn't want to do it <laughs> and actually i think it's really good kind of brain training and teaching yourself kind of how to stick at things when they're horrible and all that sort of stuff to just to 
to do those long distance things, be it cycling or running. Absolutely. Because you're training yourself in just sticking at something and 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 um, and going through the hard times and and just keeping on going till it gets good again. A hundred percent. And when yeah, a hundred percent. That's true. Especially when you're running against people in the park run, you're like. I'm going to beat that person. Yeah. No, okay, that's 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 a bit of a wrong way of looking at at it compared to what you're saying. No, but it's but the yeah, same though, because it'd be like, easy to then painful. go. If I if the people weren't there, I'd just yeah. go. I just walk this bit. I'm exactly. Bit yeah. Yeah. And, and equally, it'd be easy to pick that guy and go and beat him. They go. Oh no, he's faster than me. I'll just let him go. You know, yeah. as opposed to going. No, 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 no. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going and I'm gonna get after him and I'm gonna go faster than him. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and and your body will do it. You know, you're never gonna it'd be very rare to get to a point where you push your body so that it can't do it anymore. Exactly. It's just your mind. This is what we've been talking about, is what is actually stopping you just going hell for leather all the way around. Like, yeah. I, I try to, like, turn off those receptors now when yeah. I run. Yeah, I'm yeah. really trying to, like, not tune into the pain and just tune into, like, a, a sort of zen moment of yeah, focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's hard sometimes. Yeah, 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 exactly. You are feeling the pain. Because your, your brain is really built to say, no, don't do that. Yeah. Your brain is built to, to put you in an environment of safety and non-exertion, you know, yeah. for survival <laughs> purposes. Um, so, yeah, you are, you are combating your natural reactions by doing that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's so much fun. I love it. It's great. Oh, just out of interest, I don't know why. I, I sometimes when I'm researching people, I just have a, a thought come into mm-hmm. my mind about a band or a group. Do you know? Do you like or listen to Uncle? Do you know Uncle the band? Yeah, the the first science fiction definitely. Um, not much since then, but not mostly because I'm not aware of it. Rather than I heard it and thought I didn't like it, I just mm-hmm. haven't really investigated actually I know a guy who plays keys for him a guy called Steve oh really so I really should check it out they're really good still great science fiction's amazing yeah science fiction is just seminal yeah science fiction is brilliant Um, they did an album called War Stories which was a full band it was a full band but it has Josh Holm in it and it has Gavin Clark who's an amazing singer right um yeah, I don't know why. Sometimes when I'm just researching someone, I'm like, I want to ask them about that. Right, right, yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, funny yeah. enough, it came up on Facebook yesterday, somebody talking about science fiction. And uh, and I was saying, uh, the thing that I thought at the time was incredible is that they'd got in as guest, guest kind of artists, Beastie Boys, Richard Ashcroft, and Tom York, just before massive Verve, Radiohead, and Beastie Boy albums came out. Like, Hello Nasty came out, and... OK Computer yeah. and Urban Hymns, Hymns. Yeah. and then Science Fiction with all of those guys on it. It was like, that's just... It's almost like one of the guys in the band's in A&R or something. <laughs> well, he sort of is, isn't he? James Lavelle, yeah, 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 yeah he exactly. is, absolutely. Mo Wax. Exactly. Um, but yeah, brilliantly yeah, and, A&R'd. Brilliantly A&R'd. Yeah. What, uh, I mean, the Richard Ashcroft tracks on that album, Lonely Soul, yeah. is fantastic. It's got string section, well, actually, seven minutes. Long. Will Malone... There's the string arranger on that. He's he's got a, a writing credit on that, and I think a lot of that album leans on Will Malone because the strings on that album are just amazing, and he is Will Malone is incredible. He's really good. He does all of Richard's stuff as well. Does he? Yeah. Yeah. So he did Urban Hymns and and pretty much everything since. Um, but yeah, the Will Malone stuff is amazing on the album, and Lonely Soul is you know obviously Richard's contribution's great, and the beats you know that Josh did is obviously great. And that drop, you know, when the strings build up and up and up and up and up, and then you don't think they can't stop going up, yeah. and then they do, and they just drop to the low. Oh, that's incredible. It incredible. Is. It is great. What's his name? Will Malone. Will Malone, yeah. Oh, yeah, look him up. He's an amazing string arranger. Really, really good. And a fascinating one, actually, with that is the Ian Brown track. Uh, Be There, yes. Is it called Be There, off mm-hmm. that album? Because it wasn't on the album, and it's literally he just listened to an instrumental and thought, this is cool, 
yeah. and did a vocal on it and then sent it to them and said what do you think and they went brilliant single <laughs> yeah it was a single wasn't it yeah, yeah was it called but it was after the album had come out so they couldn't put it on the album because literally he just is it an instrumental on the album yeah or yeah is it just so, not on the album no it's an instrumental it's on the metal. album and he just got it and liked it so did a vocal on it yeah great vocal as well that, yeah. that is one of the that is one of the, the greatest uh, Ian Brown tracks for me uh, yeah it's phenomenal yeah yeah. he had a good um, period around then didn't he like remember F-E-A-R yeah that's, that's good the video in backwards on yeah, a BMX yeah, yeah. yeah that, was, that was awesome um, yeah I mean he, he did some amazing songs um, Dolphins for Monkeys is Dolphins for Monkeys yeah oh, I assisted on that one actually did you really that's quite fun yeah. no way yeah, just the mix though just the mix so it wasn't with you know he came down to check it out but Mm-hmm. wasn't the recording of it amazing but uh, yeah yeah it was good yeah got a new album out now actually came out on Friday it's supposed to be very good really I heard it. yeah uh, oh yeah okay this is one I wanted to ask you about from your talk in London and just something that you've mentioned a few times about mm-hmm. having like the automated faders yes. and things within your track yeah uh, yeah why do you do that and um, because that I guess for people who are, who are making electronic music or who mm-hmm. are making music at home they would just think to have the bass at one particular level and keep it there. Right. So Yeah, why, why do you take well, that approach? It's because you sort of got to think, from the listener's point of view, you want, as a mixer, you want them to hear and concentrate on the things that you choose as the song moves along. Because you will be mixing the song, you'll think, this bit, this guitar section's really good here, this synth section's really good here but this bit's the vocal and so on. And so what you're doing is you're dragging somebody's attention around the track. And the way you do that is with your automation. So you're bringing your things up. Once you've got everything sounding good and sitting together well, you, then your job is to just just bring the listener on the journey of the track and not just passively leave it there, but, mm-hmm. but actually draw those little bits that you want to make sure that they've heard out at the sections that you want them to hear it. So those automation rides, there's, there's obviously there's some fixing sometimes to be done if it's not purely electronic you know if there's some playing that that could be a bit you know more even then there could be rides done to fix it but there's also the kind of the the dynamics of of the song where even if it's just something that's purely electronic it's like well i want them to hear this section at this point so i'm just going to push that that synth line up just a little bit and then i'm going to put it back again and so it'll just be background from then on and then later on about one minute 30 there's that little there's not a lot happening and that could just come up a little bit there and be a little moment of interest and that that goes on throughout the song so I think you know no matter what genre of music you're doing you should always be taking that approach to your mix is it's not a static thing it's something that should be constantly moving so that you're constantly drawing the listener's attention to tiny little elements to the mix and it's and it's always a journey it's always uh, interesting things coming out yeah uh, yeah that's I think that's a really good way of looking at it I guess with the way we can now just duplicate an eight-bar loop in, mm. in our DAWs, yeah. the temptation is to that that's the main bit of it. Let's yeah. let's ride that out. But yeah, it's a more it is a more natural sort of approach having movement and like you say focus. I th- I remember you said about having three main elements within the yeah, track. That's generally people can concentrate on three things, which generally like if you're working on a song, it's probably the drums is one and the vocal is the other. And then you've got one more that you can kind of draw their attention to. And then in a gap where the vocal goes, you can throw another bit in that they can hear. So, you know, quite often I find if you turn a lot of like radio stuff, you turn it right down really quiet, you can hear the drums, bass and vocals. Mm-hmm. That's it. And everything else is kind of background. It's only when you turn it up that everything else comes out. But those are the things that really people are being 
being asked to concentrate on by the mixer. You yeah, know? Um, I think, yeah, it's really good. So really yeah, it's, good it's good to sort of approach a mix with that idea of what what the three things at any any given moment in a song, what are the three things that you want your listener to be able to hear, mm. and they should be the ones that are turned up. Great, excellent. Mm. Well, thank you very much for talking to Welcome. me today. It's been really great to yeah. speak to you. Good fun. Cheers. Hopefully, it's useful. Oh, absolutely, definitely. Good, nice one. <laughs> I really enjoyed chatting to Dom, he's a lovely guy um, with an incredible studio and uh, lots of great stories about um, what he's worked on, how he's got there uh, and I really admire his, his sort of humble approach in the early days, it's got him to an amazing place uh, and also his natural approach to production, I think there's a lot to be said for that in this alienated world we live in. Good, okay, next month I have absolutely no idea what's going to be on the card, so you tell me, uh, basically. Um, we'll find out anyway, we'll find out in a couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks, who knows. Uh, I would like to point out that my time in the park run is actually 20 minutes 47 for 5k, so I'm interested to know if anybody who's listening can beat that, maybe we'll have a race for the next podcast, then maybe that's what we'll do, we'll have a race for an hour and a half. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Miliara. I'll see you again soon.